Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. Rabbi. The king had a daughter, but he wanted a son. So the tzaddik, who is now called a chacham, a wise person, had him gather up all of the different kinds of precious stones in the world. And this chacham grinded them up and then put them in a glass of wine and gave some of that wine to the king to drink and some of that wine to the queen to drink. Why wine? Why not Dr. Pepper or milk? Obviously, Purim is not the only time of year when we drink wine. But when you think about the purpose of drinking wine on Purim, it's needed to get a person to the level of that's called ad deloyada, until a person doesn't know. The process that's kicked in and that's supposed to operate on us on Purim is supposed to take us to a place where we're not so stuck anymore on what we think is true or what we think is real or what we think is possible. We're meant to get to a place where we can say, I don't know. And part of that is I don't know what's possible. I don't know what can happen. And part of that is I also don't know what's inside of me and I don't know what's inside of you. Maybe Haman contains the greatest redemption in the entire world. Maybe Mordechai contains something that's totally destructive. Maybe this situation contains within it something which is completely necessary and absolutely revelatory and will take us absolutely to the next level and couldn't have happened any other way. So this king and this queen who are basically being told, you're going to have this kid who's not just going to be some boy who's going to serve the most basic primary function of carrying on the kingdom for the king. This kid is going to have all of the sigulot, all of the powers, all of the capacities, all of them represented by all the kinds of precious stones. That might have been kind of mind-blowing to the king and queen. They might have good reason to say, I don't know if we're on the level to have that kind of child, genetically or otherwise, attitudinally. I'm just not sure that that kind of thing can come through us. So the Chacham, this wise person, knows that they need to go a little bit towards Purim. They need to go a little bit towards loosening up what it is that they think that they know so they can make space within themselves and between themselves and each other so that they can bring such a thing into the world. And who knows, maybe they have that suspicion about each other. Maybe each one of them thinks, well, I know that I'm on the level, but I'm not sure that my husband or my wife is on the level to bring that kind of thing into the world. So they're going to have to both drink this wine that is saturated with the stones that contain all the powers. So they can let go of all the different perceptions, all the different assumptions, and therefore all the different limitations that they are imposing on the process and on themselves so that such an amazing and dynamically different and new thing can come into the world. What makes it even more interesting is that the Chacham himself, the one who's orchestrating this process, the one who ostensibly can identify within the king and the queen their own sense of limit, their own sense of what's possible, and he can provide a ritual or a ceremony or a potion even that will allow them to get past that. What's cool is that he himself also 
seems to have limits about what he thinks is possible and how he thinks things will look. And as we're going to see, those assumptions also are going to have to be thrown open for this process to unfold properly. So he tells them, they'll have a son. It will be made entirely of precious stones. And he will have all of the capacities and powers that are, are embodied within these precious stones. And he went to his place, and she gave birth to a son. Mazel tov. And then Rabbi Nachman gives, again, this interesting description, the same as he gave last time. And there was great joy made, literally upon the king, which is the same thing it said when the daughter was born. You can't help but wonder, but maybe everyone else is happy, and there's great joy around the king, or because of the king, but the king himself is not as happy as he wants to be. And maybe it's because of what it says in the next sentence, The son that was born was not made of precious stones. So maybe the king as happy as he is to have a son, was now expecting and hoping that this kid would be made of precious stones, just like the Chacham said, and he would have all these capacities and all these powers. And somehow he sees that that ultimate goal, that ultimate wish, has not come true. And he's not able to experience total joy in that sense. Such is the nature of expectations. But these expectations they weren't generated by the king himself. He didn't go looking for a kid made entirely of precious stones. He just wanted a kid who would serve the function of carrying on the kingdom. Granted, we might assume for a lot of really good reasons that it's important that this kid who's going to take over the kingdom is not just going to be some schlub, that this kid is going to have to have the capacity to not only continue the legacy of his father, the king, but take it in a direction that's going to be required in order to continue to guide the kingdom as the kingdom moves forward in time granted. But the king didn't ask for that. He might have been happy if the kid had one or two powers or six powers or half the powers or most of the powers. But he was the one who was primed by the Chacham when the Chacham said, this kid's going to have all the powers because you got to get all the stones. All the stones have to be in there. This kid has to have all the powers. So this expectation, in a sense, was thrust upon the king. It was imposed upon him when he would have been happy with much less. And yet here he is disappointed that his hopes that had been raised had now been dashed. This kid is not made of precious stones. It's really important to absorb that he is not made of precious stones. That doesn't mean that the king didn't see that he was made, in fact, of precious stones. It means that this kid is not made of precious stones. Keep that in mind. But just the same, when this kid was four years old, he was very beautiful. And he was very wise. And all the wisdoms. And he knew all the languages. Now note a couple of really, really important differences between the son and between the daughter. 
The daughter was beautiful before she was four years old. It says over there, when she was born, that she was very beautiful. And when she was four years old, she knew all the wisdoms and to play music and she knew all the languages. So this boy is not so beautiful when he comes out. He doesn't become beautiful until he's four years old. Might he have been very disappointing to his father during that time? Quite possibly. But also notice that he does not play instruments. I think this is a crucial, crucial, crucial detail of the difference between the daughter and the son. She plays music. He can't play music. Now, granted, my understanding of what it means to play music might be very different from what it meant to be able to play music at the time when this story takes place. It could have been that playing music at that time just simply meant that you could play chamber music and you could play the cello and you could play the bassoon and you could perhaps play the timpani and you could play your parts. For me, music is a very, very, very deep expression. It's something that comes from very deep inside. And so being able to play music or not being able to play music would indicate lack of ability to express something which is very deep inside. Now you could come back and say, yeah, but he speaks all the languages like his sister did. That certainly includes expression of all manner of ideas and feelings and impulses that a person might have. Totally true, but music is music. Music definitely expresses something that words cannot express. It certainly goes beyond the thoughts, the logical sequence of ideas that we tend to include in our words. It expresses something very deep, and he does not have that. And Rabbi Nachman goes on to say, And kings came to see him. Again, this is very different from what happened with the birth of the daughter, where it says, Kings came from every kingdom, from every land, to see her. You get the sense, again, that some kings came to see the boy. He was pretty talented. He was pretty interesting. He was certainly beautiful, but not enough to get the attention of the entire world. Some kings came to see this kid. Sounds like this kid's somewhat of a disappointment. And that actually is really good for the princess. Because it says, This daughter had seen that she wasn't so chashuva, so considered, so important. And she was jealous of him. Again, even though she has talents that he does not have, and she had a certain fame and attraction that he doesn't have. But Rakzot Haya Nechamata, this, however, was her consolation, or her way of thinking about it. Because that tzaddik, that righteous person, interestingly here not referred to as a chacham, but as a tzaddik, as a righteous person, had said that he would be made entirely of precious stones. It's good that he's not made of precious stones. We notice here that the story is not about 
the relationship between a parent and a child or between a father and a son or a father and his son and his daughter. Now it has become a story of siblings. The fact is this is a very common development in many of the stories in the Torah. When Cain and Hevel, when Cain and Abel face off and Cain kills Hevel, where's Adam? Where's Chava? Where do they go? Did they have other children to attend to? Do they have other business that they couldn't bring some attention on their only two children who are the only other people in the entire world? When we see that Yosef is tangling with his brothers, when we see that Yaakov is tangling with Esav, where are the parents? Why don't we see Yitzchak and Rivka intervening when they see that Yaakov and Esav and the tension between them and the dynamic between them has become so intense and so heated that they might require some intervention? Why doesn't Yaakov do more when he sees that Yosef and his brothers have reached a point that it might boil over and lead to bloodshed? In fact, the opposite, Yaakov sends Yosef out to engage with his siblings directly, knowing that it might actually lead to bloodshed? But this seems to be the nature of things in the Torah, that the relationship between siblings, that's where things are ultimately going to get worked out. That's where people's strengths and their capacities are going to be evoked. It's within that relationship that things happen. So the princess is aware of her brother. She is relieved, perhaps, that he is not made of precious stones because she is worried that she will not be chashuva. She won't be so important anymore. So she's relieved. 